Welcome to Jim Galliano's Building a Better Web Presence podcast. Build something better with less moving parts, less overhead, and less headaches. Hey, everyone. This is Jim Galliano, and thanks for joining me for today's podcast episode. So we're going through a bit of a cold snap where I live here in Florida, and uh, I'm used to cold weather, having come from the state of New Jersey, but I'm also, I guess you could say I'm more used to the hot weather than I am cold weather now. It got down to about uh, 32, between 32 and 34 degrees Fahrenheit over the weekend, which is pretty cold for down here. And I know the record as far as when they started to record temperatures was back in 1899, I believe. They recorded in Orlando. It was like negative two degrees or negative four or something like that. But where I come from with the wind chill factors, uh, and I'm sure this pales in comparison to places in Canada and, of course, north of there, but with the wind chill factors, I think the coldest weather I've ever been around or in was uh, negative 20 so I remember what it was like to be outdoors and the wind is blowing and your face, you can't feel your face. Your face gets numb and sometimes even your lips, if you're out there long enough, will begin to swell up. It's even difficult to talk when you're in exposed to that kind of low temperatures. Mild f- symptoms of frostbite begin to form. I have to tell you that one of the reasons why I enjoy where I live so much is because we're closer to the equator. It really does get hot down here, especially if you're further down south in this state. But I can adjust to warmer, hot weather a lot easier than I can frigid or sub-freezing weather and temperatures. So I hope you're doing well. Last week, I launched the Digital Strategist newsletter. It's a free newsletter if you haven't received it yet. If you're a subscriber of mine, then you probably, you should have gotten the first issue already. If you haven't, go ahead and check in your spam folder. It's probably there. But if you don't receive it, go ahead and visit my new website at jimsnewsletter.com. I put a separate website together just for this newsletter. It's a monthly newsletter that's designed to help people like you, people who listen to this podcast, freelancers, small digital agency owners, small business owners, digital consultants. And I'm looking to send it out about once a month at this point. So the second issue will be out towards the end of February. And to be honest with you, this was something that I've been wanting to do for a long time, just have fun with a newsletter and begin to share things like some of the books that I've read on marketing or digital strategy and some quotes, just a a quick, easy, an easy breezy read, (laughs) but that it has nuggets of truth in there. Because when you think about it, when you go through long form content, whether it's a book or a long podcast or anything else, of course, it's those little nuggets of truth, those little insights that you get that really make the time invested worth the effort. And so I thought maybe I can take little nuggets like that and share it and just and just have some fun with it. I know that some people get really intense about things like email marketing and newsletter marketing, and there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, I enjoy the conversational flow that goes into a newsletter style type of email as opposed to, you know, just a direct sales pitch in an email. So that's why I decided I'm going to start the digital strategist newsletter. I think it, it fits Well, it definitely fits my personality because as you know, if you listen to this podcast or if you've listened to it for any length of time at least, you know that a lot of the things I talk about aren't just, um, how can we say, the how-tos, but it deals more with the, I hate to use the word mindset because it's that word has just been done to death, but how you think about what it is that you're doing and having the desire to simplify things to the point where the work doesn't become drudgery. You know what I mean by that? Just today I was helping someone get their podcast episode together and upload it, and they were having some technical problems, and we had problems with the audio player not rendering properly in certain browsers. And it's the things like that, and I understood where this person is coming from, that just makes them not even want to do or go through the effort of podcasting. But we can apply that to anything. 
If you're get just getting started with blogging or you're just getting started with a YouTube channel, a lot of these things that are going to feel like second nature to you if you do them regularly and what type of software is best for you. Because sometimes the software that is the most popular on the market relative to solving that particular problem isn't really the best software for you as an individual. Maybe it's overly complex or it just has too many bells and whistles that make it more difficult for you to do whatever it is that you need to do. Just this weekend, I bought a program that does nothing but remove backgrounds from images and from individuals. So if I have a person, if there was a, a bunch of us in a photo and I wanted to remove the background, this will do it in just a few clicks. And if I had, let's say, uh, products that I, was, that I happened to be staging for a photo shoot or something like that, or I just saw something somewhere that was a nice photo, but the background didn't go with it. It doesn't have to be a person. It could be anything. You can remove the background from it pretty easily. And there are so many software programs that do this. There are so many software services online that you can subscribe to that do this. Plus, there's programs like Photoshop and all of the others. But the issue for me with a lot of these programs, as good as they are, it just takes me too long to basically draw an outline around a figure and meticulously remove the background. And I do this quite a bit. I know for a lot of my clients, sometimes I'll try to help them edit an image, and it's just easier to pull the people out of the image and to put them against a different background um, or even just a color or uh, some type of gradient background because the what's there, it just doesn't look right. So I guess I'm, I don't want to talk about removing background. One program that does everything that you need relative to that thing, like one maybe graphic program that does everything. And I know Photoshop does just about everything that you can think of. It is basically like the, um, the most well-known, most complete graphic design or graphic program out there. Adobe Photoshop, Adobe Illustrator. But unless you're going to use this program regularly every week or even every day, then the subscription price to have that software, it just, it just isn't worth it. So I went ahead and I bought this little program and it ticked all the boxes for me. And it enabled me to do something yesterday in about 10 minutes that it would have normally taken me probably about an hour to do. So, but today, what I wanted to talk about uh, was uncertain times. But one last thought on the newsletter. It is available for you at jimsnewsletter.com if you're not receiving it. It is an, a double opt-in. So just so you know, just check your inbox or your spam folder if you don't receive that confirmation within about a minute. But today I want to talk about uncertain times, planning during uncertain times. And this is one of the things that entrepreneurs, solopreneurs find it very difficult to navigate and uncertainty that surrounds their business, uncertainties that surround their niche, their marketplace. And one just quick thing I wanted to throw in there about that term solopreneurs. I started using that word more around my clients who consider themselves to be entrepreneurs. And some of these individuals have a full, full working staffs of people but yet they identify with that label solopreneur more than entrepreneur. And when I questioned why, the answer, of course, is because they feel that if they remove themselves from their business for more than just a day or two, that things will begin to fall apart. That the people that, not necessarily that they have bad people working for them, but a lot of times... And if you hire people and people work for you, you know exactly, you'll be able to identify with this right away. Sometimes you just need people that can think for themselves, that don't need to be told by, quote unquote, the boss, every little thing they have to do or else they don't do it. So when someone's hiring you or paying you by the hour, and, and all of these, of course, people have physical locations that I'm talking about now, so it makes it even uh, more so. But you don't want people just sitting around doing nothing because they finished 
the last set of instructions that you gave them and now they're just going to do nothing until you give them a new set of instructions. And so, you know, what every boss wants, what every business owner wants is to have an individual type of person that will find something to do and look and see things that need to be done that aren't being done and take the initiative to do those things. And I would say that, wow, probably nine out of 10 employers, business owners, don't feel that way about the people that are working for them. They feel that those people are barely going to do what they're told to do, if that, and they just don't take the initiative. So one of the things I learned early on in my own work experience was if you take a little initiative and you do things without being told to do them. Now, I know sometimes, yeah, you might step over the line and do something wrong or in your enthusiasm to make a good impression. You know, you just maybe go a little too far in one or two areas. But it's much better to do that and to be corrected than to just sit around and have a, be a low value type of type of employee. But that same thing applies to um, all of us, even as business owners, that when people are hiring us or you know hiring or subcontracting our companies to do work for them, <clears throat> that sometimes we'll see things or notice things as a subcontractor that that person didn't notice or didn't even mention. And so it's nice to just go ahead and fix something that's wrong rather than take the position that, well, I'm not being paid to do that one thing specifically, so I'm not going to do that. It's kind of like seeing there's some junk laying on the floor that shouldn't be there, and there's a there's a basket, a garbage basket next to it, and it takes two seconds to bend over and pick it up and put it in there. But a lot of people just take the position, well, that's not my job. I'm not hired to do that. I'm not going to do that. And so they're unhappy. Uh, the boss is unhappy. The whole work situation is just a place of unhappiness in a lot of places because people feel like they're not being paid what they're worth. And sometimes you have to prove your value. You can't just say, well, you know, I have this much experience or I graduated from this school, therefore I have X amount of value. You have to prove it day in and day out. But when it comes to uncertain times, I don't know one time in my life that I could say I live through a time of certainty. I think we all live and go through life in times of uncertainty. But as this applies to business, as, a, as an entrepreneur or solopreneur, I think that a lot of times it's really easy to get caught up in what's hot and what's not as far as a topic goes or a product goes, so the services that people are buying, the types of information that they're subscribing to or buying. It doesn't make any difference what the form is. It could, could be books, could be courses, something in between videos. It seems that everything changes very rapidly and very quickly. And if you try and keep up with all of these things, it can be exhausting. Matter of fact, just keeping up with the things that you believe are important to your uh, company, to your niche, even that can be overwhelming at times, let alone all of the other things that are connected with with your market. But sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we're focusing on something that was very popular and, and now it's not anymore. And then you find yourself wondering, you know, I put all of this effort and focus into something because I thought it was a good opportunity. I thought it was popular. So let me just stop you right there because I just had this thought. You don't build a business just on opportunities alone. In other words, the kind of opportunities that come and go. Every holiday season, there are certain toys that are very popular and if you have the foresight to recognize what these things are, maybe you'll buy a bunch of them before the holiday season at a lower price, and then you'll sell them at a premium price during the holiday season. And although that is an opportunity, that's different from having a stable business model. So maybe you have a business that enables you to do that, but you don't base your entire business, or at least you probably shouldn't, just on catching these things just right. I know in the world of investment, you can look at amateur investors versus professional investors. And you can look at some of the largest portfolio managers in the world. They, people that manage some of the largest portfolios of multi-multi-millionaires. And the percentage of return 
that they get is very, very small. In other words, the most successful portfolio managers in the world and portfolio companies, they still only generate a very small return percentage-wise for their clients. And I know a lot of people get into things like buying and selling stocks because they see an opportunity. But people that are more or less opportunity-driven have a gambling type of mindset. And the big picture, sometimes we just look at the, the short-sighted picture of what we can accomplish within the next 30, 60, or 90 days. Now, that could be with anything. It could be with a product launch. It could be with buying and selling a stock or a commodity. It could be anything. And we see that, yes, people have huge successes during these short spans of time. And we want that for ourselves. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to launch a, a product that brings in a huge chunk of money in a short period of time? But if you look at the timeline, if you zoom out and look at the timeline, people that use that as more or less a strategy, you'll find that the times that they lose are more regular than people from the outside looking in realize or even recognize. We see the big wins, but these same individuals are not talking about all of the losses that balance it out. So even on a scale like you can talk about an investor, an investor is an investor. What is their purpose? Their investor is to take those assets and multiply them. Having money make money. And that's done by what? Buying low and selling high. But oftentimes it's just a matter of degrees from the buying to the selling. But it's done consistently that way. So I've listened to entrepreneurs over the years talk about the pros and the cons. My entrepreneurial background was more of a conservative approach to doing this. In other words, build for the long term. Because the rush to make money in the short term has been responsible for the collapse of more than just a few businesses. Matter of fact, I'm not just talking about smaller businesses now. I'm talking about even large corporations. Some of the largest corporations that were known, let's say, in the 1990s collapsed because, and we can look at a lot of them, like if you lived here in the United States, you're familiar with Kmart. Uh, well, at least I guess if you're over 30, you're familiar with that. I'm sure that if you live in the UK, you could think about businesses that are companies or brands that were really popular when you were in high school, and now they're nowhere to be found. And if you go back and look at the history, and if it's like reading a biography of a person, right? You have the beginning, middle, and end of their life uh, if the person has passed on. You can do the same thing with a business. You can study the beginning, middle, and end of what was once a successful business. And a lot of times, the reason why these businesses fail is because at the height of their success, they overextend themselves. In other words, they believe, they're like the gambler who's on a winning streak, but every streak comes to an end. And so that's the, that's the problem with the, the gambler mentality is you remove yourself from more of a logical approach and you're functioning in an emotional approach. And getting back to things like emotion, isn't that what uncertainty is? Uncertainty is an emotion. So if everybody's talking about all the hard times that are coming down the line, uh, financially speaking, what, whether it's true or not, recognize, you recognize that there's always going to be people making money regardless of what's happening in the overall economy, regardless of the state of the stock market, regardless of anything. There are always people that do well in quote-unquote uncertain times. But I look at it like this. There really is no such thing as certain times. <laughs> so... But if you put all of your time and energy and effort into, let's say, kicking off a, a new project and you have a hot topic, but by the time you're ready to produce the book, launch the course, uh, start advertising the new service, it, the popularity of whatever that is begins to cool off. And so you were focusing on something that was popular and that gave you the energy to get started, but it's not anymore. And then you start wondering, well, am I even doing the right thing? So, you know, I've done this plenty of times. I've started a project that, you know, two months ago, everybody was talking about it, but it seems like it's cooled down a little bit. 
So two other words that we can use to express this situation are the words unpredictable and unreliable. Now, everything we want in life, the things that bring us the most comfort are what? They're not unpredictable and they're not unreliable. They're the opposite of that. They're predictable and they're reliable. And so what I began to realize during the heights of stress that I experienced in my own business journey, and uh, let me, I'll just share heart to heart with you. I started out in the publishing world back in the 1980s, even before there was an online world to do business in, but the online world was a perfect fit for me. And I, I got, I got off to a very fast start. And by 1998, I, I officially started my own online business, even though I was selling things before 1998 online. I think technically the very first thing I sold was either in 95 or 96. And so I got just a taste of what could be done in the online world. But I had an offline business, a publishing business. And I was thinking, how do I get this? How do I create an online version of my offline business? And this is what got me involved with the, in the early days with things like marketing, because even before the online world um, was part of the playing field, I would try and sell things going from business to business in my car in the early days. And I would drive in there and I would talk about what products that I had. And it was my earlier, my earliest efforts at trying to be an entrepreneur. It was my earliest efforts, even though I was working a job and sometimes a full-time job out of college, I had kind of lousy jobs in the field of graphic design. So I was interested on the side uh, because my, my dad was an entrepreneur, his dad was an entrepreneur, his dad before him was an entrepreneur. On my block where I lived, there were probably more entrepreneurs than the average block, so it all seemed normal for me. It seemed normal to take a chance and win. It almost seemed certain. <laughs> so I, at 20 years of age, or I actually started before that, like 17 years of age, the entrepreneurial journey or what we might call today even the solopreneurial journey, didn't seem uncertain. It seemed certain. It seemed predictable and it seemed reliable. It seemed like the only things that I would have to do is the initial work up front to get established, to grow roots deep enough so that I would be able to withstand any type of unpredictable situation that might be around the next corner. But one of the things, one of the issues that I had, and I, I chalk it up to the generation I grew up in, the, what the generation I grew up in has in common with the uh, generation that's t of today, the current generation, the current 20-year-olds, the current teenagers, is a lack of patience. The generation before my generation grew up in a, in a time where patience was a requ requisite. But from, I would say, my generation on there were things in place that enabled you to do things faster than ever before. So the idea of waiting for anything was almost unacceptable. I mean, even today, waiting for anything longer than, you know, a few moments is almost considered unacceptable. It doesn't make any difference whether you're waiting for something to come in the mail or you're waiting in a line at a checkout. It doesn't take long for people to start rolling their eyes and making comments when things get held up. And so how that affected me during my earlier years was that I was expecting things to kind of manifest themselves a lot faster than they did. And when they didn't, I got frustrated. And so I began to experiment with a lot of other things. So the problem, my earliest challenge, and maybe this is something that you're facing too, maybe not to the degree that I was, but my lack of fast results led me to lose interest in what I was doing and what I was building in favor of possibly getting the same kind of result and the result I was after was financial, doing something else. And so I would say I held that mindset for not quite a decade, but I would say it had to be close to it. Because at least... Over here in the West, the concept of fast, easy money is not only does it seem realistic to a lot of people, but it's almost like an oasis in the desert. 
Because if you're working at a dead-end job, you know what it's like to go in there and, and basically you exhaust your patience working for people that you feel like don't appreciate you and uh, aren't don't recognize your value and aren't paying you what you're worth. And I mean, the list just goes on and on. And then when you work with people that support that belief, feel that way about themselves and are the, the murmurers and the complainers and they kind of draw you in. And then it feels like it's always the employees against the world. It's always the employees against the bosses or, or management. So, but what, what I'd like to do is let me just talk you down from the ledge a little bit here. Let me talk you down from the ledge because this is something that I've had to do for myself uh, throughout my career. And I, even though I haven't had to do it recently, I, I know the feeling. I know the feeling of when it looks like, or it feels like, let's just say it feels like what you're doing is quite possibly going to be a waste of time. I know what it feels like when the direction you're heading in doesn't feel like it's really going to lead anywhere. I know the feeling of having too many options and being afraid that you're going to choose the wrong one. I know all of that. But what I began to recognize as time went on was that I had to build a business. I had to build a career on something that wasn't as fleeting as what's hot and what's not right now. Right now, in our economy, I'm saying our, I'm saying our collective economies, no matter where you live in the world, people make mundane purchases day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out. It was so years ago, it was so today, and all things being equal, if there's still an earth here where people are doing business on, it's going to be so in the future, over the years to come. And these are just mundane things, things that nobody talks about around the table. They, and you look around your house. Look at whatever is in your sight right now. Look at those objects and realize that for a lot of these things that you're looking at, people are manufacturing those things. People are buying those things. Look on your bookshelf. Look everywhere. From the smallest to the largest, people are buying and selling those things every single day. And so if you base your business on something that's quote unquote evergreen, it doesn't come and go with the seasons. And it's fine if you want to do a little bit of gambling, do a little bit of hedging your bets, uh, do a little bit of forecasting or prognosticating and say, I think that this is going to be a hit 12 months from now. So I'm going to get in early. If you want to do a little bit of gambling, if you want to, if your risk tolerance maybe is a little bit more, than the average person, just make sure that losing isn't going to cost you, you know, big time. I still do little things like that from time to time. I'll do a little bit of uh, gambling, so to speak, but uh, I hate to lose. I'd rather just bet on something that seems more certain than less certain. But when it comes to certainty, there are certain things that are evergreen. And when it comes to things that are evergreen in business, just think about what those things are. Some of you out there have backgrounds similar to mine where you've been in the web development in industry or you're a freelancer and people hire you to do designs, to do SEO, to do writing, to edit video. They, they hire you to do all kinds of things. And you know, just because you're not you know, making a mint right now doing what you're doing, just because you're not rolling in the dough, so to speak, it doesn't mean that people aren't buying those services anymore. And I know how it feels. I know how it feels when new clients aren't exactly you know, breaking down your door to hire you. I know how it feels when your inbox has nothing but ads and not inquiries. I know how it feels when you don't have very many clients and there's not too many prospects on the horizon. It feels terrible. You know, but you don't base business decisions just on feelings because feelings come and feelings go. Have you ever met somebody and the feelings towards them were one way? Those of you who are dating or those of you who have been divorced, <laughs> have you ever had feelings, such positive feelings for that other person uh, that you thought you could never imagine feeling any other way towards that person than how you're feeling at that moment? And then what happens? <laughs> Yeah, that, that changes. Sometimes it changes fast. Or something just seems so important. It feels so important. It feels so encompassing. 
And then looking back, you think, why was I thinking that way? That really wasn't that important. Why did I let it occupy so much of my time? It really wasn't that important. So feelings affect every single one of us, some more than others, absolutely. But there's no such thing as being human and not being affected by these feelings. <laughs> you know, there's no such thing as being human and not being duped from time to time, or not duping yourself, I should say, even. And so uh, let's get back to some things that are certain in business. People are going to be hiring freelancers for the foreseeable future because, and they're going to be hiring subcontractors, and those subcontractors are going to have all different types of skill sets. Why? Because they're not going to be able to do the work themselves because they don't want to learn how to do those things. That's what, what you do and more or less we look at it as a profession. You're a professional. There's a reason why people hire professionals. Because sometimes even though you can do something, you can't do it at a high enough level that makes you happy. And so you hire a professional to do it to make sure the job is done right. And so even though you may not have maybe enough business right now, it doesn't mean that you're in the wrong business. Now, when I talk about things like marketing, when I talk about things like marketing, then I know that opens up another can of worms. And in my earlier days, when I first got started, when I realized that marketing was my problem, let's, let's put it this way. If I can just give you a quick visual of how I felt inside when I realized my problems were all marketing related, my initial feeling was like a crying baby in a crib, a mad crying baby. A crying baby that doesn't want to feel better. You know that kind of, <laughs> sometimes we feel that we're not babies, right? But sometimes we feel that way. We want to be mad and don't even try to bring us off. Don't even try and talk me off the ledge right now. I just need to be mad. It's like I had this dog that, uh, a few dogs actually over the years that would bark at something that they saw. But even when that, what they saw was out of sight or no longer there, they still had like a few extra barks left in them that they would have to get out for whatever reason. Well, people are like that. You know, sometimes people just need to be mad a few more minutes. So I was like that when I learned that marketing was the issue that I had. Because no matter what direction I turned in as an entrepreneur, there was marketing again. Now, I, un I understood how sales worked. I felt comfortable with sales. To me, sales just simply boiled down to this is all the great stuff you're going to get if you buy this thing, you want to buy it. And that, that was my initial how I looked at, at sales. I kept it very simple. Actually, it's, I don't make it much more complicated than that today. But marketing, on the other hand, that was how to get people's attention and how to get their attention long enough where it made what I was selling seem you know, somewhat enticing. So all roads basically led through that wall of marketing. And so by the late 1980s, going into the early 1990s, I just decided that I was going to master this entire marketing conundrum that I was faced with because going forward into my future, I knew that no matter what avenue I chose, no matter what I was going to sell, no matter how I was going to position myself, everything was going to come back to marketing. And so today, looking back on all of the miles that I've traveled relative to business in this course, now I can really simplify things because a lot of the marketing was just like everything else. A lot of it was theory and a lot of it really didn't have practical application. So if I had to teach marketing in a college, I'm sure that I could fill up quite a few uh, curriculums with all sorts of graphs and charts and little booklets and layouts and all of that. But today I look at just the things that matter and I think to myself, if I only had decided, now it wasn't in my personality at the time because of my lack of patience to do it this way, but if I had only settled on one thing and focused on one thing and applied all that I was learning and had learned about marketing to that one thing, then everything would have happened faster, easier, and all of the things I wanted would have happened like in chapter two instead of chapter eight. So if you're in that place now, look at it this way. We learn from our mistakes. There's really no way around that. And I guess you've probably made your share of them already by now. But let me just tell you some simple things that will, if you're all uptight about what's happening in the world around you right now, if you're all uptight about your business and your future and how these things are going to connect or if they're going to connect and work at all, 
let me just share with you some of the very basics that are evergreen. These are things that you can always go back to that are stable, that when you feel unstable, like your world is falling apart, you can kind of use these things to talk yourself down from the ledge. So the first thing that I had to come back with is the foundation of my business of what I'm doing. What you're doing shouldn't feel like heavy work, heavy lifting. It should be something that you enjoy. Even work that is literal involves heavy lifting. The people that do the best are the people that enjoy that kind of work. You know, there's people that I go back to the sport of pro boxing. There's been great fighters over the years that didn't mind getting punched. <laughs> I, I mean, I hate to put it that way. I don't say that to talk down about someone that, you know, is in a position to uh, have that kind of a career. A lot of these people feel like they didn't have any other out, any other avenue, but the fighters that did the best were the ones that really liked to fight. Now, today, there's some really talented fighters out there, but to be quite honest with you, and I don't blame them for this. Believe me, I don't. It's one of the reasons why I didn't become a fighter. I didn't want to get my brain scrambled. Very first time I tried boxing, for those of you who don't know, my grandfather was a boxing trainer. He worked with some world champions that wound up in the Hall of Fame. He wound up in the Hall of Fame himself. He tried fighting, didn't like it, so he decided to get involved with the sport in a, in a level that he could as a trainer. Uh, you know, I enjoyed the sport myself. I created a boxing magazine, and I enjoy the history of it, but I don't enjoy getting punched, and I don't enjoy the long-term effects of having done it. But some of them, they never even considered that. They just loved fighting. And you talk to, you look at any of the cases of individuals that were all-time greats, and they really loved what they do. Even if it was brutal work, there was something about it they loved. I look at these shows, and I see like these fishermen fishing in these, uh, you know, these subarctic type waters, <laughs> sub-freezing, I should say, temperatures, and all of the danger. But they love being out there. I can't imagine that. Well, I'm not a fisherman, and there's other people that see maybe people like you and I and think. My God, you sit in front of a computer monitor? I could never do that. I have to be outside. I have to be. I have to feel the sun shining down on me. I have to be able to breathe in fresh air. I can't be in an office, not even a home office. They would never think of that. So the, the number one thing is that your, your business shouldn't feel like work. And if it does, obviously there's some things that you know aren't going to be like all uh, roses and rainbows in your business, but you should enjoy doing what, you, you, what you're doing. And if you don't enjoy it, then maybe you shouldn't be doing it anymore. I know a friend of mine who was building websites said to me not long ago, "Is you know you've been building you've been building websites. I don't focus on building websites, but I build a lot of websites. I, when I say me, I would not just me alone, but I've always worked with teams for the most part. I've done some of that by myself. That's not the point. But you're doing it for 23 years. I, I can't even do it for seven years. I'm already burnt out." And I suggest to him that, you know, there's not, it's not that there's something wrong with you. Maybe that's just not the work that you should be doing. And I think that sometimes people are afraid to admit that. Now, that same skill could be used in a lot of other ways other than building websites for other people. Maybe you should be building websites for yourself or your own company. And those websites will perform tasks like and, you know, fill in the blank. But your business should be more than just a way to make money. See, these are evergreen things that should be part of your foundation. If you're trying to build something that subconsciously you don't even want to build, then you're at, you're, there's a conflict. There's an inner turmoil there. And I remember there were things that I went to college for and I found myself out in the workplace. And I was in this place of inner turmoil because I didn't enjoy what I was doing, but I was trying to make myself enjoy it because I didn't see any other options on the table. There are other options on the table, but you may not be able to find them like, like you can stop on a dime and just make a complete 180 and head in another direction and do the whole thing within the next 24 hours. That's unrealistic. But if you're not happy with what you're doing, know that there's plenty of other things out there. Start looking again. And I don't even care how old you are. You know, if you still have breath in your body, it doesn't matter that maybe you're retired and you're trying to do this to supplement your income. Or I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of different cases. But there should you. when I do what I do, I feel like there's purpose in my life. This is one of the reasons why I got involved with consulting. 
because as a consultant, I'm not just there to give information. If I was going, if I was going to do that, I'd just be a course creator. I'd create courses or write books or do both, and I would never have any contact with anyone. One of the things I love about contact is that I get to talk to a real living, breathing human being just like myself. And, you know, a lot of times I'll meet with a group of people and we'll go over things and we'll solve problems. And that gives me purpose because if I invest my time in doing that, not only am I helping people solve their problems as a consultant, as a digital consultant, but I'm also helping improve their lives and they appreciate it and they appreciate me. And the fact that I'm appreciated makes me feel like what I'm doing has purpose to it. And the next thing is, and this is the thing that's really important, is what you're doing has to be profitable. You know, you have to have high enough profit margins. Now, it's one thing if you want to help someone on the cheap, that's up to you, but that can't be everybody. So one of the things that was important to me is that I wanted to be able to, to have a profitable business where the profit margins were healthy enough where I could do things that maybe other businesses could. In other words, if, you, if you're in a flea market and you're selling secondhand items and you're doing that for cash flow, that's fine. And if you're just starting out, that's fine. But, or if you're retired and you just want a little supplemental income, that's fine. For those of you who don't know what a flea market is, it's just like an open-air market. I don't know if they call them flea markets all over the world, but that's what we call them here in the U.S., North America, I guess. I'm just using it as an example of having just a simple little business set up where maybe you have a table with some things and people buy it. <clears throat> Sometimes people do the Internet that way. You know, their little table is just a simple website and they sell a few things from it and they're happy with that. But I need something to be a little more profitable than that. I need the profit margins to be a little bit higher. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, the other thing I wanted was the ability where I wouldn't have to move for work, move for employment. In other words, I wanted to be able to be portable enough and this is how I was thinking when the online world was in its infant stages, where I could work from anywhere that there was a connection. And so that was the foundation of all. If one of those things weren't in place or wasn't in place, then I would have to go back and fix that before doing something else. See, sometimes we, we feel like everything's uncertain, but there's reasons why we feel that way. Until we address those things, there's kind of like this inner conflict. And when you have inner conflict, then you don't move forward. You're always hesitant. You're kind of gun shy. So um, we need a few things. You need, you need the market, right? You need the, the reason that you need something that you enjoy. You need to be able to, to monetize it. And when, when you have all of those things in place, when you've identified those things, then, you know, I think about the type of market that I'm going to target from there. Because there has to be a, enough people, there has to be a big enough interest in doing this thing or buying this thing or getting more information or getting help with it. That has to be there. If it's not big enough, if the interest just isn't there, then I don't have, really have a long-term business. Now I know with hot things, the interest comes and the interest goes. But with evergreen things, the interest is always there. And so that's how I evaluate what I'm doing. Is it really evergreen or not? You know, the other thing is not only does the interest have to be there, but the dilemma has to be ongoing. The dilemma has to be ongoing that people face because for some people, the dilemma has to do with the thing that you do with your profession. Your profession solves a dilemma. And there's enough interest where there's enough people buying that product or service. All these things kind of like snap together. They have to have a dilemma. Sometimes the dilemma has to do with time. The person just doesn't have enough time to do what it is that you do. Sometimes it's skill. They don't have enough skill. Sometimes it's both of those things. But there are dilemmas that are evergreen. You know, weight loss is a great example of this. I mean, sometimes when you talk about marketing, you kind of think a little bit narrow as far as marketing goes. But that was the dilemma that I had earlier on was that no matter what I do, I'm going to have to kind of crack the marketing nut, at least as it relates to what I'm doing. All right, let's go on a little bit further. Let me see where I am with the time here. All right, so let's go ahead and start tying up some of the loose ends here. If you're uncertain about what you have, you're uncertain about what you're doing and where you're doing it, and you feel like everything around you is more or less unpredictable and unreliable, 
let's go ahead and get some foundational things back in order. Maybe you thought things were set in stone before, but what we might call the weeds of uncertainty have a way of growing up and blocking out what was once a very clear, very distinct direction that we wanted to head in. But let's start with three basic things. Number one, what you do and what you're really good at. If you want to put a label on that that makes you feel better about it, go ahead and do so. I know labels are just labels, but certain labels have a way of making us feel better than others, where other labels are more bland and they don't really get us enthused about the work we do in general. And number two, who you can help. Who can you help? I'm sure that you all have a certain specific type of person that given a choice, you would rather work with that kind of person, that kind of business owner, that kind of client above all others. We all have a group of favorite clients that we enjoy working with. Those of us who have been around for a while, some, some of the clients that we have, we've been working with for many years. And just ask anybody who's been, been in business for a while, and they'll tell you that if they had more of that particular personality type as a client, that they would love their business much more than they do now. But, uh, and then get clear on how you can help them. Maybe how you can help them now, today, is a little bit different than how you helped them in the past. Maybe you can increase your value a little bit more by adding or subtracting certain things. If you look at the end result as a recipe, sometimes it's time to change the recipe up a little bit. So things like titles, you can change those. How you do things, all those things can be tweaked and you can end up with a, just a better end result overall. When I say who you are, let's start with that. I'm talking about your personal brand, the things that other people know you for. If you're not happy with that role, and it is a role if you really think about it, then you, know, you just have to rewrite the script sometimes and decide that this is who I'm going to be going forward and then let your actions back that up. But when we think about how we can help others, Really think about the skills, the insights, and the experience that you bring to the table. And uh, I think, you know, one of the things that tripped me up with this, to be perfectly honest with you, is a lot of the marketing information that's out there, especially in the past, it really focused on this concept really heavily of having an ideal client type. And I think this goes back to the, especially the 80s, where this became a very focal point in marketing training People back then more or less called it a, well, actually people today call it a customer avatar, but they called it an ideal client type. But the concept works like this, one type of message to one type of client. Let me say that again, one type of message to one type of client. If you're speaking to everyone, you're in essence really speaking to no one, especially if you're in a crowded marketplace. So uh, with, with the exception of being maybe your inner circle of connections. So th these are the people who've already bought into your product, your service, how you do things. They're already your fans, so to speak. And so they're a completely different type of person than the person who's more or less on the outside looking in. And the problem happens is when you can't settle on who it is that you think you should be talking to. So picking that ideal client type can be like a really hard thing for a lot of people to wrap their minds around because when they look at the current people that they do business with. There's all different types of personalities. Remember, we're talking about removing uncertainty. So if I use my own business as a case study, I would say that I don't have a single ideal client type. I don't have a single customer avatar, as some people call them. Over the years, I've identified four different, what we might call ideal client types instead of a single one. And what they all have in common is that they're all at the top of the ladder as far as they are the decision makers. They're not middle management type of people. They're not newbies just getting started. So if I had to break them down, there's four different types. There's the small business owner, and this is the person that's looking to sharpen their marketing skills. This is the type of business owner I'm talking about. They're not a hands-off type, but they're looking to buy done-for-them solutions. So they educate themselves to a point because they want to understand why they're doing what they're doing, but they're not looking to do everything themselves. They're, they're more of the leadership type. The message for this group is specific to this group. Then there's the small agency owner. And these are people that are looking to 
take their business in the most profitable direction possible. They don't have a lot of people working for them. Sometimes there's only one or two people working. And what they need is the guidance and the systems and the plans, we can call strategies or plans, interchangeable words here, to make this possible. And the message for this group is very specific to this group. There's the freelancer, and this is the person looking to separate themselves from other competing freelancers so they can grow their business. And they have a lot in common with the small agency owner in that the majority of them are now working from home or remotely. And the messaging for this group is almost the same as the small agency owner. The main difference is, is that many of these individuals are looking to productize their income uh, more via, we might call them automated product offerings like courses or downloadable products or things like that to kind of balance the time that they invest in the hands-on part of their service business. And finally, consultants. This is the last group, and these are people that are looking to scale their business from one-to-one to one-to-many. And the consulting model can be used by also the small business owner. It can be used by the small agency owner. And it can also be part of the freelancer position as an added income model. The consulting aspect is a bolt-on service almost to all of these other groups that I mentioned today. And it is the easiest to manage long-term solution once it's set up. And also, a consultant can also be what I like to call a standalone consultant meaning that their responsibilities begin and end with the advice they're dispensing to their clients. So they're not actually doing any hands-on work. They're just advising. They're an advisory type of capacity. So most of these other people, freelancers, small agency owners, business owners, they're already doing consulting-type services. They They don't have it productized yet. Even though I've mentioned four different ideal client types here in this example, if I wanted to, I could combine the consultant and the freelancer together, and then I'd be left with three. Just for the sake of the explanation, though, I left it at four. So each of these individuals, they all have very similar challenges. I would say that maybe 80 to 85% of the challenges they face as a small business owner in general, as a small agency digital business owner more specifically, as the freelancer and as the consultant, I would say about 80 to 85% of the challenges are almost identical across the board. But it's the remaining 15, 20% that really, as far as solutions go, as far as products go, that's what these individual types are really looking for, something that speaks specifically to their needs. Let's take a small digital agency owner. This is the type of person, of course, they're going to be doing social media marketing like everyone else does. They're going to be having their website in place. They're going to be networking, all of these general things, the 80%. But when we look at the 15 to 20%, these are the people that are looking for specific systems that will make the daily running of their business much easier, much smoother. These are the people that are looking for specific processes as far as onboarding a new client and what materials they should be delivering, the wording of their contracts. One of the things that I focused on in one of my courses about building and marketing a digital agency was the fact that oftentimes people will, the client on the client's end, the customer's end, they will try and drag out what should be a 30, 60, or 90-day process into month four, five, and six. And so I have specific wording in my contracts, one of the things that I share in this course, on how to specifically state how many revisions the person will get, how to avoid these incremental micro when the person is contacting you saying, I would like you to change this little image in the upper left-hand corner and maybe make it from 100 pixels long to 150 And then let's see how that looks. Instead of having 101 emails with little changes like that going back and forth and back and forth, we have the changes um, compiled into rounds. So there may be three rounds of changes. So you might tell that person, okay, we're going to include 
that change in the first round of changes. Let's look at some other pages and some other details. We're going to do them all at once, not from day to day to day. And that will constitute your first round of changes. And then we'll go back and you'll have two or three rounds of these available. And so this way, the person actually does not take what would be a $1,000 job time-wise and make it a $3,000 job because they're continuously micromanaging the project. As a small digital agency owner, it's your job to manage the project. And this is just one of the little things that maybe the consultant doesn't have to worry about or the, the general small business owner doesn't have to worry about. This is specific to a small digital agency owner. And so those little things like that is what would make your product, your messaging, whatever it is that you're offering, clear, more concise, and more targeted to that specific type of individual as opposed to general messaging, which tries to be everything to everyone. Even if that everything to everyone is a group of four different types of individuals. I hope that makes sense. So every type if you think about it, we can take any type of product or service and this would apply. Now, sometimes we pick the wrong ideal customer type, but we don't realize this until we get started. For example, let's say that we were selling sportswear and we determined that men between the ages of 21 and 35 would be our ideal client type. Men that enjoyed outdoor activities. So we're going to create, and men that were college graduates or whatever, we're going to create a sportswear for them. Sportswear meaning whatever it is that you would use, the clothes, the shirts, the shoes, the boots, the hats for men. But we realized that as far as an ideal client type goes, well, maybe women wouldn't be the exact ideal, but they also buy sportswear. And how about kids under 18? Sometimes the entire family will go and do something like uh, outdoors, camping and fishing and things like that. Mom, the kids, the father, everybody goes together and it's a family type of thing. So just focusing on sportswear for men may not be enough to move the needle, but we don't know until we get started. If we look at maybe a two years into the business, we may see that, well, 60% of our sales if you think about how a pie chart works you know you have the pie and you have the different slices with different colors representing different aspects or maybe a different customer type in that business maybe in the red pie we have 60 percent we can see those are men maybe women is maybe half of that and maybe kids yeah I mean, you get where i'm coming from but maybe we anticipate in the very beginning that men will be 70 percent of our our buyers and and women will be maybe 28% and the rest will be kids under 18. But it turns out that the men just aren't buying the way we anticipated they would. And the, the women become our ideal client. But we don't know until we focus on each individual group. If we try and just focus on the family in one big campaign and just lump everyone in together, then the effectiveness just isn't there. This is just an example because... In marketing classes and sales and marketing type schools of thought, everything is just happening on paper. It's not happening in real time in reality. And so when we test, we test small. We t just like I was talking about last week, if you test your idea on social media, not in a paid ad, but in a free post, and you're not getting any interaction, then turning that same information, those same images, the same video into a paid ad doesn't make any sense. But if you are getting traction with certain messaging, both on your personal profile, on your business page, in your group, then it makes sense to take those, that same information, the same images, the same video, and convert that into an advertisement because you already have proof that what you're doing is working. So we may identify four different types of potential ideal clients, customer avatars, whatever you want to call them, but we can't talk to everyone at once. So we pick one out. We start with the one that we think will give us the best result and the best return on our effort. And then we target our messaging specifically with as much clarity as possible, addressing that person's challenges, addressing the issues, addressing their frustrations. But if we don't get the return that we had hoped, 
And this is where patience is just, there's no way around it. If we don't get the return that we hoped, then we're going to take client avatar number two, ideal client number two. And what's difficult about this is we often think, well, this person's not going to respond because this is the reason why we put them in the number two slot instead of the number one slot. And so sometimes marketers, especially if they're a solopreneur, don't have the same energy going after the second best option as they did going after the first. But remember, all this is happening into your, in your head until you actually test it for yourself. And so you may find women or even children being your number one response group. And you didn't think that was possible. It happens all the time in the world of marketing. Marketers are shocked by what people respond to and what they don't respond to. Because even with focus groups, even with all of those forms where you can do the questionnaires to see what people want, it's amazing how many times those things are inaccurate. Even with millions of dollars in research, marketing agencies have found that the information they get from research and the information that plays out in reality, how it really plays out, is oftentimes even you know, diametrically opposed to one another. That's why people don't put the same stock in 2022 in questionnaires as they did 10 years ago. Because oftentimes people just say what they think you want to hear. They're trying to be helpful, but they're really not being helpful. Now, with my own system that I teach, the one-to-many system that I help my own clients build out, we start by picking one ideal client type. We pick the one that we think is going to have the best chance in giving us the return that we're looking for. And that's so that we can really focus on getting the messaging right for that type of person. And that's how we get started. Getting the messaging right requires, again, clarity. Because once you have that clarity on who you're talking to, it makes focusing much, much easier, which makes everything else. It's like the first domino falling. It helps remove that uncertainty and it helps you to keep on keeping on. Now, let me just say this in closing. I think that as crazy as this sounds, in hindsight, what I've come to realize is that the smartest people in the room, as well as... We might call them the multi-talented people, entrepreneurs, solopreneurs. These are the people that struggle the most with this. And I think the reason for that is they're the ones that have the most questions that need answering. And a lot of times they won't move forward with what they have until they feel like they have almost all of the answers they need. Because the bottom line is a lot of these individuals really don't want to test. They want to get it right the first time. And so rather than moving forward quickly with the testing, they'll kind of pull back and they'll kind of do their best to get every I dotted and every T crossed. But again, until you actually have real world feedback from real world efforts, all you have as an intelligent guesswork, I guess that would be the only way I could put it, because that's really what it is until you actually go out there and do it. Think about sports as a great example of this. Whether it's an individual sport or whether we're talking about a team sport, it's one thing to practice. It's one thing to train. But on game day, things happen that you just didn't anticipate in the training and you have to adjust as you go forward. All right, let's go ahead and put the bookmarker in it there. That's about all for today. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If you think it will help a friend, go ahead, if, especially if it's helped you, go ahead and share the episode link with them or send them to jimgalliano.com forward slash podcast. If you're ready to change, I have good news. I have a brand new program coming out. It's taken a little bit longer than I would have liked to launch, but there's just a few more things that had to be put in place. It's my complete one-to-many system for growing and scaling your own brand. Once it's built, it's much easier to manage. It's much easier to maintain. And if you're ready to join me on a journey that removes layers of complexity from your existing business in favor of a more manageable, easier to scale business model, this is definitely for you. But for now, thanks again for listening. Have a great rest of your week and I'll talk to you later.